When you guys see this word up on the screen, what do you think of? The word God. I asked Janae earlier, and Janae said, well, I think of that word, of course. And I thought, well, you're ruining my illustration, Janae. But it's probably true. You originally think, well, that's the word God. But what more do you think? What more do you attach to that word? We have many words in the English language that have a range of meaning. There are even some in current usage that are completely confused with their original meaning. But I would submit to you that this word, God, is a word that is probably more misused and misunderstood than many other words in our English language. Now, we may not be able to quantify such a thing as the misuse of words, but even so, I can't think of a word that's probably more important than this word. This is probably the most important word in our language. Can you think of a word that has as much eternal importance as this word? Think with me for a second of the scripture passage of Matthew 7:21. Jesus said, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven." On that day many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name?" And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, if you look at this verse, how important is the name of God? We did it in your name. We did it in your character. We did it in your identity. And so when we look at this word God, we have to realize that it is very important what we're thinking of. If relational intimacy with God, knowing God, is the key to being one with him eternally, then isn't it important to know his name? Isn't it important to know the one that Jesus refers to as his father? To know someone is to know their name. It is one of the first things you learn about them because names are important. I fear that many people in the United States and possibly many within the so-called Christian church believe that they know God intimately, that they call out to God But in reality, they have no relationship because they don't know who he is. This morning, as we look at our text from Deuteronomy 4, I pray that it would bring great clarity for all of us as to who God is. And even more so, that it would cause us to begin laying aside all the mischaracterizations and the folk religion that we attach to the God of the Bible without even knowing it. I hope that it will cause us to read the Bible in a way that will cause such great intimacy that when we stand before him one day in eternity, we are not shocked by who he is. In that moment, I pray as your pastor that you would hear a father speaking to his child and that you would say to him, I recognize you, God. I've known you my entire life. And that you would hear him say, I know you do, my child, because I know you. How many of us in this room want that level of intimacy with the Lord? In order to do that, we have to know who he is. So let's begin our text this morning back a bit before the text we're going to focus on, just a little bit in Deuteronomy 4. Let's start at Deuteronomy 4.6. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 4.6, and we're going to move through the first verse of our text from today, verse 15. It says this. Keep them and do them, speaking of the law. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on, that, on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Let's pause there. Moses is speaking a speech to the Israelites before they move over into the promised land, and he's reminding them of the history of the Exodus and the relationship they have with God. And what we realize in the midst of even this text that we've gone through, and even just verse 15, is that to know the Lord is to know his name. To know the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is to know his name. Undergirding this whole section is the necessity of knowing the name of God. Do you notice how many times in this short text the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is used? Moses is getting across something very personal to people. And he's getting across to them the necessity of knowing the name of their God. If you look at verse 7, there's a statement of intimacy. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it? If you look at verse 13, you can recall that he, God, declared with his own voice his covenant to this people. There was no necessity, no requirement that the creator of the universe would step into this tiny dimension and speak to his creation. And yet he did. This is amazing. I think for, often we focus on the cross and we take for granted the fact that even before the cross, God in his grace declared himself to us. Long before the cross, God in his grace stepped out of his place and by his voice said, I'm here, you can have a relationship with me. God who created the universe spoke to a group of people that he had chosen as his own. Folks, you can't get more intimate than that. But this wasn't just any God. This wasn't just any deity or divine name. This was the one true God, the Lord. Remember that the word God in English is a title. And even more so, it's a class. It's really to say deity. When you yell out God, you're going, Deity! Divine one! In our language, it would be like calling someone you know man or woman rather than their name. See how that's not very intimate? Hi, man. Good to see you, man. Well, our slang, that kind of works, right? (laughs) But even then, think about your spouse. Hello, woman. Guys, try that tonight. See how well that goes for you. This becomes really confusing 
Because when you talk to many Christians, you will hear them say things like, well, that's when I found God. But think about any other relationship. If I'm referring to my wife, I would say, that's when I found Kelly. That's when I found my wife. I would not say, that's when I found a woman. Right? And this becomes apparent when you look at language because the word God comes in many forms. And so if God were the Lord's name, then it would be Dios in Spanish, Du in French, Shen in Chinese, Kami in Japanese, Got in German, Bok in Russian, Wend in More, Keakua in Hawaiian, Bonye in Haitian Creole. It's not his name. It's a class. Here's one that will throw you for a loop. In Arabic, you know what the word for God is? Allah. It's not his personal name. To say Jesus is God in Arabic is Yahshua hu Allah. Jesus is Allah. Now we as Christians, that tweaks our brains. How is that possible? Well, guys, the God of Islam is so separated from the people he supposedly is God over that they don't even know his name. They just call him deity. And he's so mean that they have to be careful when they do call his name. Now, we must understand that our God, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that came as Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, is not just God. Let's look at the history of the name of God. Turn with me to to, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Everybody read for me the first four words there. You should know it by heart. If you don't, it's Genesis 1-1. What are the first four words? In the beginning, God. Very good. Next time, try have a little bit more passion, but that's okay. In the beginning, God. Okay. Notice that this word God is just G-O-D in the English. It's used 32 times in 26 verses in chapter 1. And all throughout, it's what God is known as. And the word in the Hebrew here, if you go back and look at the original writing, is this. Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. It actually can be used as the plural, but it's God. Okay? But then, turn with me to Genesis 2.4. And look at what it says in Genesis 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What this wording here is, is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. But remember that this name, Lord God, wasn't known then, It was read back in to Genesis by Moses when he was writing it. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their offspring, they only knew him as their God, their deity, the Almighty. That's what they knew him as, the Almighty. They even knew him by his actions. They might call him the God who sees, for example. But they did not know a name. It took all the way until Exodus 3 for them to know his name. Turn there with me to Exodus 3. Just go a little bit to the right. And go to Exodus 3.13. Okay, Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, to Elohim, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Right? You're supposed to have talked to him, Moses. What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Got to do this in the Charlton Heston voice. Luckily, I have a cold. I am who I am. Right? And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses is attracted to a burning bush here. He hears the voice of God. He asks this great question. Hey, if they ask me who sent me, who should I say? And at first, what God responds with, the I am that I am, it's eye, asher, eye, which means I am that I am. Or it can mean I will be what I am. Now, this gives us two huge understandings of who God is. First, it shows us that the God of Israel is the only self-existent one. There is no other being that is self-existent. And secondly, it infers that his character is unchangeable and he will always act out of that character. I will be who I am. How many of us as humans can say that? Really none of us. I will be who I am. That's why we know God is unchangeable in character. But Moses can't go and say, oh, I will be what I will be sent me. What? Even grammatically, that doesn't make any sense. That's odd. So in verse 15, God states his name. He says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, sent me. What we say it as is Yahweh. Okay? Those top characters there are the Hebrew characters. And below it, because Hebrew reads right to left, not left to right, is Y-H-W-H. That's how it's transliterated into our English. It's yod Hey vav Hey. Those are the characters. Y-H-W-H. Now, this should open up the reading of Scripture a bit for you because it helps us to understand that this is the God that we follow in comparison to Ashtaroth, in comparison to Baal, in comparison to Molech, in comparison to all the rest of the gods. This is the true and living God, the personal covenant God of Israel. For example, in Psalm 148, What did it start with and end with? If you were paying attention, it started with praise the Lord. And it ended with praise the Lord. Well, in Hebrew, do you know how you say praise the Lord? You shorten the name Yahweh to Yah and you say hallelujah. Praise you people, ye, Yah. When you say hallelujah, you're saying, you guys, praise God, the one and only God. Can everybody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. That's why hallelujah is the same in every language across the planet. is because it's the Hebrew for the one true and living God. You go to the middle of Burkina and you say hallelujah, everybody goes, oh, hallelujah. They know that it's speaking of the Christian and Judeo God. Now, to the Hebrews, this written name was and is to be revered that it should not even be spoken. And so often you will hear Orthodox Jews not calling their God by his name, but saying Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. It's kind of mystical, right? It's the name. We don't say the name, but it's the name. You know what I mean, right? Now, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but that's how they do it because they can't say Yahweh. And so what they do is they say the name. In fact, if there are any people in Israel listening to this online, which we do have folks in the Middle East listening, they are going to find what I'm saying very inappropriate and very disrespectful. They don't say the name of Yahweh. So I'm sorry to those guys. But the practice for biblical writers and for scribes was to instead, because they didn't want to say the name of God, they would say something that still had respect but wasn't his name. So they would say the word Adonai. Everybody say Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. Notice the lowercase letters. You would call this uh, your boss this, 
a lord. You would call the person that owns your home this. You would call a shepherd would be lord over his sheep. That's what this is, is Adonai. The Hebrew scribes became so worried about someone mistakenly speaking uh, the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh that they wanted people to say this. So when you're a Hebrew reading through the original Hebrew text, it would say yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh, but you would read through it and you would say Adonai. You would never, ever say the name of God. In my Hebrew classes, looking at the Hebrew that says yod Hey vav Hey, we would say out loud when we read it, Adonai, because we wanted to respect God's name. You guys following me so far? This is really important, Okay. And so they wanted people to not accidentally be slowly reading through and accidentally pronounce the name Yahweh. So they actually created this artificial word in which they wanted to make people pay attention. And so what they did is they took the word Adonai, Lord, and it's hard to see, um, but each of those little markers above and below the main characters, those are vowels, vowel markers. They took those and they inserted them back into the tetragrammaton to create an artificial word that you saw with your eyes that looked like this. And so if we were to spell it out in English, it would be Y-E-H-O-W-A-H. And so it would make people see it with their eyes and they'd say, oh, i got to remember to say Adonai instead of Yahweh. Well, you know how you say this in English? You say it as Jehovah. This is where the name Jehovah comes from. It's not the name of God. It's an artificial word that was created to make people remember to say Adonai. Okay? And so the reality is, is as it was translated into English, scribes who spoke English didn't know this was an artificial word, and so they started to say out loud Jehovah, and it became a popular way to speak the name of God, and they would write in their Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that's passed all the way on to where we're at. So why is this important? Well, because I want you guys to know who is behind the Lord in Scripture, It's not just a title that serves as a placeholder. I want you guys to see that every time you read L-O-R-D in Scripture, you're seeing the name of the Almighty. And you're seeing the God who is the covenant God of Israel and the covenant God of his people. It's used 5,410 times in Scripture. Moses is trying, as he's saying this, to try and help Israel connect to their personal God who desires an intimate relationship with them. Brothers and sisters, the name of the God we serve is important. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the self-existent one. He is the great I am. He is the name above all other names. He is Hashem. Now you might say, Hans, are you trying to turn us into a Messianic Jewish church? No, I'm not. But Christ came in the name of Hashem. Christ came in the name of Yahweh. But there's one problem. Our sinful, evil, rebellious hearts do not want to follow the Lord. Even if we mentally know who he is, we might say, great, I know his name, that's awesome. But the original sin that dwells within us, it keeps us divided from him and against him. And that rebellious spirit drives us to want to dethrone the Lord and place ourselves above him in the created order. We want to place ourselves on the throne. And so from the beginning, we've been idolatrous, worshiping false gods made in our own image rather than being his image bearers worshiping him. And so Moses is going to now, in the rest of our passage from today, warn the people 
that for them to worship the true Lord, the covenant God of Israel, they must not worship idols. And so the next thing we see, you can write this down, is to know the Lord is not only to know his name, but to identify and dismiss the counterfeits. To know the Lord is to identify and dismiss the counterfeits. And you can turn back to Deuteronomy, and we're going to continue in chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4.15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Moses is clear to the people that they cannot create idols that are false gods. If God has a name, if he is real, if he is true, he has a character, then to mischaracterize him in any way is sin. You might think, well, what's the big deal with having a little statue and worshiping it? It's not hurting anybody. But to understand what Moses is getting at here, we must understand the structure of God and his creation. Do you guys remember this from Genesis chapter 1? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You guys remember that? Yeah? Okay. In Hebrew, the word for image is tselem. Elsewhere in Scripture, when you see this word in Hebrew, it's translated as idol. God wanted to make little idols that reflected him and breathe life into them. That's the creation account, is that we were formed out of clay just like a little statue and that the Spirit of God was breathed into us and we became life uh, living beings that reflected who he was. This is very similar to how Caesars would create statues of stone that reflected their image and place them in every major city throughout their empire to remind the citizens who the king was. God's plan was to remind his creation who he is by placing idols or statues or pictures of himself, images, throughout his creation. So when we decide to create our own tselems, our own idols, we are literally usurping the position of God. And worse yet, we are saying that the God that created us is symbolized and reflected in these things that we created. 
We attempt to make them take the place of God upon whom we are created to depend. Now Moses helps us understand that when we allow worship of anything other than Yahweh to creep into our lives, we are perverting that created order, that we depend upon God because he created us to reflect him. That is the created order. And in verses 16 through 19 there, when he's naming off, beware lest you create any of these things, he's actually speaking out in a, in a literary way here, reversing the order of how God created things. We're basically trying to pervert and flip upside down the created order. The difference in Yahweh is not that he looks different because he has no image, but that he has spoken and called into existence a people that are to look different than the worshipers of every other God. We are to look different because of the worship that we give by the way we live our lives in righteousness and justice. Now you might say, but Hans, don't, we don't worship statues anymore. This is stupid. Why are we even going through this? It's ignorant and antiquated to worship a little statue. But guys, idols are anything that take the place of God as our sustainer and the source of our joy in worship. When we use our time, our talents, our energy, our treasure to lift up and depend on anything other than the Lord, we create an idol. And guys, it happens like that. It can be anything. It can be your children. It can be your parents. It can be your siblings. It can be your job. It can be your hobbies. It can be weightlifting. It can be running. It can be sports. It can be your TV. It can be your car. The list goes on and on. It can be sex. It can be the pursuit of happiness. All of these things can be idols because they take the place of God in our lives. Now, let me suggest to you three main ways that idols come to be in our lives. The first is through simple ignorance. We're created and we have sin in us, and that sin leads us to idolatry. Without the Word of God telling us who the Lord is, we have no hope of knowing Him. Our sin causes blindness. We can look all around us, Romans 1 says, and see that there is a creator, and yet we create idols not made in his image. Our sin causes us blindness, and we look to ourselves in that narcissistic sense that Seth was talking about in the prayer, and we wrongly think that we are God deserving of all praise and worship. Guys, if you don't believe me, just go online and take a look at social idolatry, I mean media. That's what it's there for. Worship me, please. Give me a thumbs up, right? That's what it's all about. And so first is simple ignorance. That's where idolatry comes into our lives. Secondly, idolatry can creep in when we take the truth of Yahweh and we don't guard it. Three times in this section we've read this morning, he said, uh, take care. And the word there in the Hebrew is to guard. And so when we don't guard, our own ideas start to creep into who God is. Guys, remember uh, Eve in the garden? God said, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Satan asked her, what did God say? She said, we can't eat of it or touch it. Rather than going back to the solid truth of God's word, she started to morph truth into her own view. And guys, this is rampant in the church. It's rampant in the church and it has been for a long time. We refuse to read Scripture in its original context and choose verses out of context to back false views of God. I see it all the time. This is why when I sit down with people, I'll say to them, we can't talk about God unless we have our Bibles open. To talk about God without your Bible open is a sin. 
Why? Well, because you're just going to let your own ideas infuse into who God is. There's a massive movement in the church today of parents whose children are stepping into lifestyles that are against the Word of God, and suddenly those lifestyles are now acceptable. Because, well, my kiddo is in that lifestyle, so that means God must have changed his mind. That's how you let your ideas infuse into the Word of God, and it can't stand. We must take care to stick to the truth of God's Word in every aspect. Well, third, idolatry creeps in, and we slowly but surely morph the Lord into an idol when we look to everyone else's idols because our fear of man is greater than our fear of God. And we notice that the God of others is all about things like prosperity and comfort and a political viewpoint that we agree with. And therefore, well, that must be who God is. And so we start to put bumper stickers on our cars where we have the fish and then a certain political sticker. And yes, I'm talking to you Republicans. And yes, I'm talking to you Democrats. And yes, I'm talking to you Independents. We all do it. We notice that the God of others is kind of like what we would like it to be, and so we form him into what we want him to be. Guys, this was the problem with the golden calf. Uh, Look with me here on the screen at the wording that Aaron uses to describe the golden calf. We think about it and we think, man, they were such idol worshipers, but look at the words specifically in Exodus 32, 4 through 5. Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, I knew they were idol worshipers. But notice what he says next. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to, what are those words? And notice that it's in all caps. We're going to do a feast to Yahweh. See, he looks like a golden calf. They had allowed a false view of who Yahweh was, the view that they'd picked up when they were hanging out in Egypt, to turn into what they believed Yahweh was. Dear brothers and sisters, if there is one thing I can exhort you to do from today is search the scriptures to see if the God that you follow in your everyday life is actually the God of the Bible. And it's not just your own imagination or folk religion talking. I think most Christians, most of us, we don't do our own research. We just look to a person who we think is quote-unquote Christian, and we go, well, that's what they believe, so that must be what I believe. Isn't that what pastors are for? No, pastors are to get you into the Word to search the Scriptures daily. And guys, it takes a ton of work. Do you press into the Scriptures to figure out who the God of the Bible is? Ask the question. Sit down this week. And write out the character of who the God is that you serve. And I want you to take those pieces of character and go back and look for them in the Word of God. Is the God that I believe in the God of the Bible? Unfortunately, any of these lead us to miss God when we see him. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, was walking among Israel and they missed that he was the incarnate God in front of them. As Christians, I think we often look at that and we arrogantly think, I don't know how they could miss him. You know, look at, he's the Messiah, geez, what what was wrong with them? But the reality is that our politics or our selfishness or our striving for comfort or our yearning for security or money or sex or power, all these things can cause us to miss who God is. Moses had mischaracterized God when he hit the rock in anger after God had told him to speak to it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
And this led to him not being able to step into the promised land. And so he is begging the people. He's saying, guys, don't mischaracterize God like I did. Take care. You see, church, following idols leads to destruction because it separates us from our creator. It separates us from our provider and our sustainer. It replaces the real thing with a counterfeit. To say that we can be sustained with something other than the sustainer is to slowly but surely poison ourselves. And this is why God is a jealous God. We were created to have one God and he only has one people. Those that reciprocate his covenant faithfulness and exclusive commitment were to be his people. And church, just as adultery will destroy the reciprocal covenant faithfulness found in a marriage, faithlessness to the one true God will destroy us as well. And this is what he's going to say here in Deuteronomy 4.25. He says, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. And you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Just as we have witnesses to the covenant of marriage and we have witnesses to the passing down of legal sentences of guilt, God is calling heaven and earth to witness to to one or the other, to either the covenant faithfulness or to the guilt of idolatry. The question is, is which will we choose? Will we choose covenant faithfulness towards God or just punishment in the form of destruction rightly deserved? Well, you might not like that idea. You might think, man, I do not want the second option. So how do we protect ourselves from falling into this trap of morphing the truth of God into a false idol? Well, what we do is we run everything through the filter of the truth of his character found in his word. You can write this down. Number three, To know the Lord is to know his character. To know the Lord is to know his character. I already started there in verse 29. Let's keep going. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord... Your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, 
and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Even in the midst of complete rebellion and faithlessness, Moses states clearly that God's character does not change. And this is the first safety that keeps us from turning to Yahweh, turning Yahweh into a false idol. If you know his character, it gets harder and harder to manipulate him into what you want him to be. Let's take a look there and see. First, we see his compassionate and forgiving spirit. His compassionate and forgiving spirit. We see that he is merciful and faithful, that he will remember his covenant. Brothers and sisters, if you have fallen and walked in sin, this is the character of your God. You need to know it. What God requires is that you turn to him with all that you are and he is ready to receive you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to love you. He will not give up on the covenant he has promised to his people. And he has acted in a way that shows historically his amazing graciousness and love towards his people. What other God is there that has done these miraculous acts of redemption and salvation? The answer is there is no other. There is no other. And these same characteristics that show that there is no other Savior are those that God spoke of himself in Exodus 34. I've hit this a lot in Deuteronomy, and I will continue to do so. In Exodus 34, 6 through 8, Moses stands before the afterglow of the Lord, and the Lord passes before him and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, and those should be capitalized. It didn't come over in the software, but those should be capitalized. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The longer I pastor, the more I see that we have created an idolatrous God in the American Christian church that is not the God of the Bible often. The true Lord is the balance of love and holiness. To sacrifice one to get more of the other is to create a false idol. You see, God is one who waits to be merciful to us. This scripture is the most referenced scripture by the Old Testament of itself. And when you find yourself ascribing a characteristic to God that doesn't fit in this, you need to run quickly away from it. So many of you beat yourselves up crazy because you don't accept the first half of who this God is. 
So many of you grew up in authoritarian views of religion that you don't recognize the faithfulness and steadfast love and mercy and grace and compassion of the God that sent his son to die for you. I used to, I would have said a couple of years ago, some of you in this church are just going willy-nilly and sinning because you don't understand the second half of this, but I don't think that's the case very much anymore in this church. Many of you need to know the mercy and grace of God. Is this the God that you believe in? Well, if that's hard for you, if it's hard to pick out the character traits of who God is, a second safety for making sure we understand who God is rightly and we listen to his description of himself is to look to his son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the perfect image of the Father. The name Yahweh, I am that I am, speaks of his self-existence. That he needs no one to create him, nor will he ever be destroyed or end. The Father is the beginning and the end. In the Greek, he would be known as the Alpha and the Omega. And this is why the book of Revelation speaks of Christ three separate times as the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last of the Greek alphabet. Look at Revelation 1, 5 through 8. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You want to see the Father, the one who has no beginning or end? Look to Jesus Christ. The name Yahweh, Hashem, is the name above all other names. His name carries an authority no one else carries. So when Jesus receives the title of the name above every name, Paul is very purposefully equating him with Yahweh. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, That is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not his surname, by the way. It's not Jesus C. Lord, it's his God. Not only is Jesus the agent of salvation as the Messiah that died in your place and mine on the cross, he is the express image of Yahweh the Father incarnate amongst us. And that is why he could say in John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus is the way to the Father. The name Yahweh is the great I am. In John chapter 8, verses 54 through 59, Jesus is debating with a group of Jewish men, and he is trying to tell them that if they actually knew Yahweh, they would follow and obey him, the Christ. 
And notice what he says to identify himself to them. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. (laughs) How do you think that went over? (laughs) But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi in the Greek. He just called himself Yahweh. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Dear church, this is how we can believe in a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all divine. Moses stated unequivocally in Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and lay it upon your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. I wonder if these were the words that were ringing through the ears of Peter as he proclaimed before the Sanhedrin as we read earlier. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, in Jesus, we see the perfect reflection of our Lord God. He is God amongst us, Emmanuel. And in Christ, we not only see the perfectly just and merciful heart of God towards his creation, we also see a love that compelled him to give his only son as a substitute, a sacrifice in our place to die the death that we deserve, to suffer the division from the Father that we are supposed to have. And all this was so that we might be washed clean and forgiven and reconciled into the covenantal people of God to be one with the great I am. What a merciful God to reach out to a people that have denied him, that have mischaracterized him. Brothers and sisters, know therefore today And lay it upon your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one way of salvation. It is in the sacrificial death and atonement of the one whose name means Yahweh saves. Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Make sure that you know him today. If you don't know him, please come back and talk with me in the back. I'd love to introduce you to him, to pray with you, to accept him as your Lord and Messiah. Well, knowing he is the only way, let's look and see what Moses finishes with back in Deuteronomy 40. We're almost done here. One last verse. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for all time. The last thing we can write down is to know the Lord is to respond in obedience. To know the Lord is to respond in obedience. God's people have been given a front row seat to knowing his character and to know him. And so because we've been united with him through the new covenant of the blood of Christ, we can do what the Israelites could not and would not do. We can, by the regeneration and the power of his Holy Spirit that he has poured out upon us, strive towards obedience, not perfectly, but in growing fashion. 
And this is not an ethical perfection. It's not a perfection that saves us. Our actions cannot save us. But it is an ongoing desire to grow into the image of Christ and the covenantal commitment to justice that flows and follows as we love God and love one another. I love Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Is that what you boast in? Do you boast in your intimate relationship with the Lord that loves you? I know that I boast in so many other things. Oh, that God would melt those things away from me, that that would be what remains. To know God is to know his character and reflect it to those who are in darkness. I think the reason that many of us are unable to walk in obedience is because we're following a God that we may call Lord, but is not the Lord. In Luke 6.46, these are Jesus' words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is clear that we can call him Lord, and we can even be people that do certain religious actions or have religious mystical experiences. But none of these mean he is our Lord unless he is actually our Lord. To know the Lord is to know the name of God, the character of God. To dismiss the idols and uh, the things that take his place in our lives. And to respond in obedience so that we might be a people of righteousness and justice in all we do. How quickly we forget the immense costliness of the cross that was required and necessary to bring us back into relationship with the Father. We suddenly adjust our view to suit ourselves. And so I want to ask you a few questions in closing today. The first question is this. Do you know the Lord of the Bible? Not just do you know God, but do you know the Lord of the Bible? You can do an interesting sociological experiment. When you run into a Christian and you talk to him about their testimony, watch how many times they reference God, but not Jesus. It's interesting when you say, so how long have you known Jesus? Well, I've known God a long time. Yeah, but... How about your relationship with Jesus? Yeah, me and God, we're like this. Really? You're like this? How long have you known Kelly? Yeah, me, the woman, we're like this. Well, Kelly's your wife, right? Yeah, the woman, yeah, yeah, she's, we're like this. Yeah. Well, well, how's your relationship with Kelly? Oh, the woman, she's okay. Doesn't make sense. The Exodus God, the God that came as Emmanuel in Jesus Christ, the God that is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the God that's ready to forgive you and yet also requires your obedience in response to his forgiveness and his love. Do you know this God or is your God something else? When you look into the eyes of Jesus, what do you see? Do you see love or do you see anger? Do you see him ready to destroy you or ready to save you? Do you know the God of the Bible? Stop trying to fix yourself. That's not the God of the Bible. Let the Holy Spirit pour out in your life and change you. That is the God of the Bible. 
This week, I call you to meditate and memorize some of the scripture from Deuteronomy, but also Exodus 34, Jeremiah 9, those passages we read, and let the Holy Spirit reframe your view of who God is. Second question I want to ask you, not only do you know the Lord of the Bible, but does your view of the Lord resemble a golden calf or Jesus Christ? Guys, a God of part truth is all lies. This week, I want you to start doing that thing that I talked about earlier. Write down what you believe about the Lord and then begin searching Scripture to see if it's actually true. Well, God wants my best life now, right? I mean, there's people that have written whole books on it. They've made millions off of books that say your best life now. That's what the God of the Bible wants, right? Guys, it will take you probably a minute and a half to find out that's not the truth of the Bible. Study the Word of God. Figure out if your God resembles Jesus or a golden calf. If you need help, chat with your community group leaders. They'd love to go through Scripture with you. Talk to your discipleship group leaders. Come talk with me. We'd love to go through Scripture with you. Third question, last question I have for you. Do you have idols that have taken the place of the Lord in your life? I asked somebody recently what the idols in their life were, and it was such a revolutionary question that they they actually said to me, I've never thought about that. Guys, that is the Christian walk, is to constantly identify and destroy the idols in your life. Things like comfort, power, success, money, security, family, children, spouses, sports, boyfriends, girlfriends, marriage, all these things that can creep in and take the place of the Lord as your sustainer. Well, Hans, how do I know what those are? Well, one of the ways you can know an idol is that when its presence and power in your life is threatened, you react in anger and depression. When its presence and power in your life is threatened, or maybe the hope of it coming is threatened, you react in anger and depression. Another way to find an area of your life that might be an idol is to look for where you're dissatisfied with how God is operating. Guys, it could even be your own walk that has become an idol. Could even be friendships in the church that have become an idol. If you're worshiping those things and striving after those things aside from Yahweh, they become an idol. Identify one idol this week and confess it to someone in your community group or your discipleship group and start to work with them to develop a plan to defeat it in your life. Very simple point of application. And so as we leave this place today, I want us to know the God that we serve. Not some folk religion idea that we all have that's captured in bumper stickers, but the truth of who the God of the Bible is. I pray that we would be a people that are not content to rely upon some foggy idea of who God is that we've either created in our own mind or pulled from someone else that we hope is a Christian. I pray that we would instead go to the source of God's word and seek the Lord with our whole heart and our whole soul. Because if we do, verse 29 assures us that we will indeed find him. And he will be our God and we will be his people.